Well, thank you, Jim, and uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, great to be with you tonight, and it's a privilege always uh, to be with my friend Nguyen Hong Mi and to share this remarkable story. I think both of us are still amazed every day that goes by at how our friendship has grown and all the incredible sets of circumstances that have occurred over time to bring us to where we are today. And we think there's a universal message to this story, too. It's not just a war story. It's much more than that. It's a story of the power of friendship. It's a story of the value of reconciliation. And these things, I think, have value to anyone, no matter what your interests are, your age group, or whatever. So we hope you enjoy our story tonight. And uh, I'd like to turn it over now for a moment to my good friend, Nguyen Hong Mi, to uh, have some words of welcome to you. Năm ngoái tôi đã được đến thăm nước Mỹ và năm nay tôi lại rất vui được gặp lại các bạn ở đây. Và xin gửi lời chào tới tất cả những người có mặt ở đây và tất cả cũng như bạn bè và gia đình và gửi đến toàn thể các bạn Mỹ nói chung. Last year I had a chance to come to US and I really enjoy the time of being in here. Uh, this year I I thank you very much for the invitation and the hospitality. I am very glad to be here again. And uh, it's really good to see my friend and all of you in here. All right. And I'd like to uh, also uh, introduce Mr. Hugh Dow. Uh, Hugh is a graduate student at Western Kentucky University and in my home of Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, Hugh has joined our team to, to help Hong Mi and, and me. Uh, to tell the story. So again, I hope you en uh, enjoy the presentation. What we want to do is talk a bit about our life experiences leading up uh, to our first meeting in combat. I'll show you a short video clip from the History Channel, the dogfights program that describes our dogfight uh, far better than I can. And then uh, what happened after that fateful day, what happened to both of us, our paths were certainly different both before that day on April 16, 1972, and certainly afterwards. The unlikely reunion that occurred in 2008, and then the double full circle that occurred just last year. We'll surprise you with that, I think. And then, what is our message? Why are we out here telling this story? And we have a good reason for that, and I hope you will appreciate that. I had a wonderful Air Force career. I was in the Air Force for 29 years, and I had great assignments. I got to fly great airplanes. I got to work with wonderful people. Uh, I flew a combat tour in the F-105 in 1967, somehow got promoted to major in spite of all that, and then went on to volunteer for a second tour uh, in Southeast Asia in the F-4 Phantom. When I arrived at Udorn Air Base, Thailand in uh, 1971, I was flying the F-4D Phantom II that you see here. This was the frontline fighter that the Air Force had in those days. And I want you to pay particular attention to the tail number on this airplane, number 550, because she plays about as big a part in this whole story as I do or Mr. Hong Mi does. And now, Mr. Hong Mi, will you describe your career leading up to this point, please? Năm 1965, 
lúc tôi đang học đại học thì không quân về tuyển về các trường đại học tuyển và tôi được trúng tuyển vào đi học lái máy bay và tôi được sang liên xô cũ để học lái máy bay suốt từ năm đầu năm 65 đến tháng 3 năm 68 thì tốt nghiệp mic 21 Uh, following this picture, uh, this picture was taken uh, in 1966, uh, 44 years ago, when Mr. Hong is still very good looking. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, he was uh, he attended to the university in Vietnam in 1965, but he was recruited for the uh, for the Vietnamese Air Force in 66. So he was uh, get sent to. Uh, Soviet Union to get training uh, since 1966. Đây là chiếc máy bay MiG 21 mà tôi đã tốt nghiệp năm một tháng 3 năm 1968. Và sau khi tốt nghiệp thì tôi trở về nước và được nghỉ hai ngày. Sau hai ngày nghỉ thì tôi trực tiếp tham gia để đánh nhau với không quân Mỹ. Um, the last picture was taken when he graduated from the Soviet Union training uh, Air Force. Um, and uh, he actually got back to Vietnam to join to serve the uh, Vietnam Air Force. But he was saying that uh, he had only two day break before he go to real combat. Lúc đấy tôi với Dan đang là kẻ thù với nhau. And at that moment uh, Dan and Mr. Hong is still enemy. Chỉ tìm cách để tiêu diệt nhau thôi. Try the best to save our country. Okay. Now, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, the first time we met, uh, we were certainly not friends. But, uh, and it was on April 16, 1972. Uh, Hong Mi was flying his mission out of Noi Bai uh, in his MiG-21. And I was flying my F-4 out of Udorn, Thailand. And the dogfight took place right here, about 30 miles to the southwest of Hanoi. As I mentioned, uh, the History Channel has done a very good job with their dogfights program, where they combine a, uh, real interviews with the people that were involved in a particular dogfight, along with amazing digital animation, and then some great narration to put the whole thing in context. So I hope this sets the stage for the rest of the story that we're about to tell you. April 16, 1972. American combat forces have been committed to the fight in Vietnam for eight years. Today, four U.S. Air Force F-4 Phantoms, call sign BASCO, orbit 18,000 feet above Laos. The Phantoms are waiting to escort B-52 bombers into the heart of North Vietnam in a dramatic escalation of the air war. But there's been a mix-up. The B-52s are still on the ground, and the Phantoms are burning fuel at a rate of 150 pounds per minute. To reduce drag, flight leader Fred Olmsted orders the Phantoms to jettison their empty centerline fuel tanks. Still, the reduced weight won't buy enough time. Phantom pilots know that there is, there is nothing that you can do in a Phantom to save that 
big, beautiful aircraft and burn all the fuel you got. We had to make a decision. Olmsted has two choices. Wait for the B-52s and risk running out of fuel. Or use their fuel for the flight's secondary mission, hunting for North Vietnamese MiGs. Olmsted chooses the MiGs, the Blue Bandits. He turns the Phantoms 180 degrees. Basco flight is now on the prowl. Flying number three is Olmsted's good friend, Dan Cherry. Fred makes a turn uh, and heads right for Hanoi. And we start pushing the power up and picking up the speed. And we cross that border into North Vietnam. Almost exactly at that precise time that we ingressed into North Vietnam from our orbit in Laos, my backseater picked up two blue bandits. I know. Basco Flight's audio transmissions were recorded, a remarkable historical record of air-to-air -air combat in Southeast Asia. Basco has two bandits on the barriers at 20. Copy that. The bandits on the corner. Let's get rid of them, Basco. Two silver MiG-21s are 20 miles out and closing head-on at the Phantoms. Olmsted isn't backing off. He orders Basco Flight to stay on course. They march right down the radar scope from 18 miles or 12 miles to 10 miles to 8 miles. I didn't see them at the time, and Fred said, there's two silver MiG-21s there, Dan. And I said something really clever and smart like where. MiG-21 there, Dan. Oh, joy. Two blue bandits just went by us. And that's when the fight really started. Olmsted and his wingman give chase. He rolls his F-4 Phantom into a climbing turn and swings around 180 degrees. Olmsted and his wingman are maneuvering to get above and behind the bandit into a firing envelope. Cherry and his wingman stay in trail, protecting Olmsted's 6 o'clock. Then, Cherry spots a third bandit, a camouflaged MiG-21, ambushing Fred Olmsted from behind. We've gone through about 90 degrees of turn when my wingman, Greg Crane, spots the camouflage MiG right off of our nose. The North Vietnamese have set a trap, and flight leader Fred Olmsted is the target. The stage is set for a legendary dogfight. A battle on the cutting edge of a dramatic turnaround in the Vietnam Air War. The silver MiG-21s are here. Olmsted and his wingman are here. The camouflaged MiG streaks in on their tail here. But he doesn't see Dan Cherry right behind him on his 6 o'clock. Cherry and his wingman streak forward and engage the MiG. I rolled out, saw him, and just headed right for him. And he broke left and went right into a cloud bank. Going into a cloud in North Vietnam is a scary proposition. I'm thinking, man, I don't want to go in that cloud, but I was not going to lose this opportunity either. For American airmen in the hostile skies of Southeast Asia, an innocent-looking cloud can be a death trap. 
Vietnamese radar operators can track the F-4s through the clouds to launch surface-to-air missiles against them. The F-4s can electronically detect a SAM launch, but can't visually avoid the missile. Couldn't stand it any longer, and I said, I'm not staying in this cloud any longer, MIG or no MIG. So I'd look all around, and my wingman confirmed his position. So the feeling then was, we've lost this guy. Suddenly, Baby Beef calls out. MIG, 2 o'clock, 4,000 feet above, climbing right turn. It's a lucky break. The MIG bursts through the cloud bank, right in front of him. Oh, we're right behind him now. We're right behind him. We're right behind him. Cherry peers skyward. The MIG has lost speed in his climb. He's directly in Cherry's killing zone. Cherry pitches his nose up, trying to gain a missile. I've never seen a MiG this close before. And I have this opportunity to get this guy, and I've got an airplane that's not gonna work. Desperate, the MiG noses over into a spiraling dive. He's hoping that his tight turns will prevent Cherry from getting another lock on. Cherry and his wingman kick over into a diving chase. From 25,000 feet, the three planes hurtle toward the ground. The Americans have the weight and thrust advantage. Baby Beef has nosed ahead in the dive. Cherry clears him to take the lead, rolling to the outside, making way for his wingman. Beef can't use a heat-seeking sidewinder. The MiG's turning too tight. He knows it can't lock in a high-G turn. He fires a radar-guided sparrow. Something's wrong. It drops like lead. Then he fires another one, and it does ignite, but it goes into a huge corkscrew out to the right. Then the third missile he fired, and it was tracking really well. And I thought, man, this is really looking good. Beef's third missile streaks through the sky. Another radar-guided sparrow. The sparrow tracks steadily on the descending MiG. The MiG breaks hard right. The 500-pound missile should follow, but it darts past without detonating. Cherry and Beef have fired five missiles. All have failed. Thrust into his first dogfight against an actual MiG-21, Dan Cherry is on a steep learning curve. He races through his options. Two of his missiles have failed. But he's determined to kill the MiG. 
This is going to sound weird, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to ram this guy. That's the aggressive feeling that I had at the time, was that I was not going to let this guy get away. The MiG has lost airspeed in the turn. Cherry and Beef pitch up and roll vertical to keep from overshooting. As they descend once again on the MiG, Cherry calls for the lead. I kept telling Greg to get out of the way, and I'm in burner, and I'm trying to close on him because I'm ready to shoot. I'm ready to try to shoot. Cherry slides past Crane and fires a missile. Lo and behold, that big AIM-7 Sparrow comes out of there, and it does one of these kind of like a barrel roll maneuver like this at first. The Sparrow appears to be tracking off course. But then, to Cherry's relief, it rides the Phantom's invisible radar beam to the target. Its 65-pound warhead detonates, ripping the right wing from the airplane. Cherry watches the plane plummet in a fireball. From the flames, the MiG pilot miraculously appears underneath his parachute. Cherry roars past his vanquished opponent. If I'd made a little jink with the airplane to miss the MiG pilot and his parachute, we went up by him oh, well within 500 feet of him. And I remember clearly his legs sticking out straight like this and the black flying suit he was wearing, the black flying suit on. Dan Cherry has killed his first MiG. Well, it was an exciting day for us, for Basco Flight, that's for sure. The ultimate in a fighter pilot's dream is to go out with a flight of four and then come back victorious like that and everybody come home safe and sound. My flight leader, Fred Olmsted, went on to shoot down one of the two silver ones that came over our head as well. And so uh, we did a lot of celebrating that night in the officers club. I wondered a, a lot about the fate of the MiG pilot because I saw him so clearly in his parachute. But as a lot of you in this audience I know know, uh, you're busy the next day worrying about the next mission and you're off flying another combat mission. And so really whatever happened to him, uh, I never thought about it much after that first day. But it was a, it was a very exciting time and a, and a real uh, highlight and in, in certainly in my Air Force career. For Nguyen Hong Mi, it was not so happy. And I'd like for him to explain to you um, a bit what it was like uh, after he bailed out of his MiG-21 that day. Hong Mi. Sau khi đã tránh được năm quả tên lửa, đến quả thứ sáu thì tôi bị trúng và buộc phải nhảy dù. Sau khi nhảy dù ra khỏi máy bay thì tôi Tức là trong đầu thì có ý, ý định là điều khiển dù để xuống cái vị trí thuận lợi nhưng mà tay thì không 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 cử động tức là tay không còn có tác dụng bởi gãy cả hai tay 
tôi bị gãy cả hai tay cho nên là không điều khiển được dục để cứ thế cho gió nó đẩy đi đâu thì đẩy thôi um, after avoid first five <cười> missile unfortunately uh, he got shot down by the six missile uh, he bailed out from the mig 21 uh, with uh, several injuries Uh, because the MiG-21 arm protection is not working, is why he broke uh, two his arm right after he bailed out from the uh, from the MiG-21. And um, because both his arm broken, is why he couldn't control <coughs> the uh, parachute. So he had to, you know, let the wind flow the parachute where you know wherever he's going to go. And um, and after landing, and he also broke his <coughs> back because he couldn't control the parachute, you know, go where he wanted to. Uh, Mr. Hongmi spent uh, six months in the hospital uh, with several uh, surgery to get recovered. Uh, luckily, and he got healed and recovered after that six months and uh, served in the Air Force uh, after that for several years. And uh, went back to the university, get his degree, and uh, worked uh, in, the, uh, in, in the insurance company for, for many years. And uh, this picture là những người bạn của tôi cùng bay với nhau. Um, and this picture is uh, Mr. Hongmi on the right side with his friend, classmate, who's also, you know, a flight the MiG-21 during the Vietnam War. These uh, gentlemen that you see there lined up with uh, Nguyen Hongmi are some of the more highly decorated uh, Vietnamese fighter pilots of the war and they were all a member of his class when they went to the Soviet Union to train in the MiG-21 in the mid-60s. Now another player in this that I mentioned earlier is Phantom 550 and here's an illustration of her. Uh, she continued to fight the war until the war was over and then was, she was reassigned to Korea in the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing. Uh, and then the mid-80s she came back to the United States, was all painted gray. And I'm always glad to look at this picture because Fortunately, and someone was uh, paying enough attention to keep the red victory star on the side of her. But she continued to serve her country very well at uh, Tinker Air Force Base and Air Force Reserve Unit. And then she was reassigned right here to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the Air Force Reserves, where she flew her last mission in 1989. She was uh, parked over here on the ramp uh, and sat there for quite some time. and. Uh, Uh, a VFW club in Eden, Ohio made application for her and, uh, and uh, she was towed all the way from Wright-Patterson to Eden and put on display there in front of the VFW club in Eden, Ohio. So where she continued really to serve her country quite well and very proudly, I might say. As far as I'm concerned, I, had a, I finished my tour in June of 1972 and came back to be an instructor pilot in the F-4 was very lucky and so honored to be selected for the Air Force Thunderbirds and flew there on, in that team in 1977 and 78. Went on to some wonderful assignments in the Air Force uh, to include being a wing commander in Korea flying the F-16. And then uh, decided it was time to retire in, uh, in 1988, just about the same time that Phantom 550 decided to, to hang it up as well. So we have a lot of parallels in our lives. I went back to Bowling Green, Kentucky, my hometown, and uh, never really expecting to stay there, but uh, as it turned out, second career opportunities came along, made some wonderful friends there, and I've been there ever since. And one of the first things I did was become a member of this group here. It's a group of guys about my age 
that get up real early every morning, and we go for a very fast three-mile walk, and then we go to McDonald's and drink coffee and solve all of your problems. <laughs> I know you're very comforted by that, uh, but we're still doing it. We've been doing this for over 20 years, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And one of the things we did was, uh, it, you know, this group has become very social, much more than an exercise group. But one of the things they asked me to do was to organize a tour up here to the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. And we did that. We decided we would take a van, rent a van and come up here. There were about eight of us. And we had a wonderful tour here in the museum. And our plan was to go back to Bowling Green through Cincinnati, see a baseball game, just have a very nice weekend. And while we were here, uh, General Metcalf's staff was very kind to give us a special tour. And someone mentioned the fact that there was an airplane that had historic significance to Kentucky, and it wasn't very far from here. And so we learned all about Phantom 550 and where she was. And before we went to Bowling Green, all we could do, all anybody could talk about, well, we got to go over and look at this airplane. That's all my buddies could say. And so uh, we got our map out, uh, figured out where Enon was. We drove up to Enon, uh, stopped at the Minute Mart, said, where is your VFW club? And they said, well, it's right down the road. We went around the curb, and there stood Phantom 550 right there. Uh, it was really quite a reunion. Uh, again, my red victory star on the side, very proudly. Uh, and here are all my buddies that are still walking with even today. But this was the first time I think I ever told the story of the dogfight. I think I'd probably told it to my family. But for some reason, it was just the kind of thing you don't talk about much. But since we, uh, we were very close walking around this airplane and everything, and the guys wanted to hear about it, and I told the general high points of the dogfight. Again, bittersweet reunion. It was great to see her again, uh, wondering what was going to happen to the airplane. And so all the way back, uh, uh, that's all any of us could talk about, was uh, this notion of uh, maybe someday that somehow that airplane, we could get it to Kentucky and get it restored and so <coughs> forth and take really, really good care of it. But then a bigger idea emerged, and that was, as we did more research, we discovered that there were aviation pioneers that had roots in South Central Kentucky, and nobody had ever heard their stories. Young people didn't know anything about people like Victor Strom from World War II and Bert Hall, I'm sorry, World War I, and Bert Hall from World War I, who was a member of the Lafayette Escadrille, uh, had never heard about uh, Johnny Magda of, <coughs> Korean War fame, Flying the Panther, who was the leader of the Blue Angels. And all of these wonderful, wonderful untold stories, we said, well, why not build some sort of a park to be sure younger generations are aware of these wonderful stories, and hopefully then this park and the stories and the artifacts on display there can be an inspiration to young people and actually turn it into a, a, uh, an educational facility. And basically, that's what we did. We got the support of our city and county government. We coordinated closely with General Metcalf and his staff, and uh, suddenly, the next thing we know, we have a tiger by the tail. We've gotten permission to take possession of the airplane. And on the, in December, early December of 2005, uh, Phantom 550 was dismantled here, and you can see a little ice on her nose. And it was, it was really cold. We got that done, but uh, again, on December 7th, night in 2005, she rolled into Bowling Green, Kentucky on two flatbed trailers. We got busy right away cleaning her up and putting her back together. 
uh, and uh, this is what she looks like today. We were able to, with the advice of the museum staff here, take her right back even better than she looked on April 16, 1972. And today she sits proudly on display at Aviation Heritage Park in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Now, going through all of that process, uh, the, the fate of the MiG pilot, of my adversary, uh, came more and more into my consciousness. I, I had really put it out of my mind for all those years. But now, being married back up with this wonderful airplane that took such good care of me, uh, caused me to think about who that MiG pilot might have been. Uh, what was his name? Did he have a family? Did he really survive that bailout? I, knew the, I did not know the answers to any of those questions. And so we started doing some serious research on it, made contact with some people in Vietnam through some uh, friends in, here in the United States, and became aware of a television show in Vietnam. Uh, translated means uh, the separation never seems to have existed. Very similar to an old TV show we had here in the United States called This Is Your Life. Uh, but they, they take separated people, for whatever reason they were separated, and do video profiles on them. And then they reunite them on live national television. And Tu Yin here, this young lady who is the producer and the anchor, a national news anchor in Vietnam as well, heard about my quest to find out the fate of the MiG pilot. And she sent me an email. And she said, please write me a letter. Tell me what you want to do. And I will see if I can assist you. So I took great pains to write a rather simple one-page letter, but I said basically in there that I'd always been curious, and I wondered what his name was, did he really survive, and did he have a family? Things like that that you would naturally want to know. I never expected anything to happen, but literally two weeks later, I get an email back from Tuyen that says, we have found the brave MiG pilot, and we want you to come to Vietnam and meet him on live national television. A few weeks later, I was airborne, jumped on a uh, United Airlines airliner in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and 23 hours later, I was downtown Ho Chi Minh City in Saigon, getting ready to go on this television show. Stayed in the Rex Hotel that many of you may be familiar with. Uh, and the next morning, we got busy with Tu Yin and the interpreter to as she was explaining to me how the television show was going to go and what was going to happen the next day. Now, keep in mind, we have never seen each other at this point. I think Mr. Hong Mi knew more about me than I knew about him. All I knew was what his name was. And so we left the hotel uh, and headed to the TV studio about 9 o'clock at night. We got there, and uh, I was invited up on the TV set to in uh, started to explain what this uh, program was all about. And she was showing a copy of the letter I wrote to her up on the TV monitor. And then I joined her on the set, and she started to interview me, asking me questions like why I'm there and what I hope to accomplish by all this. And then the next thing she did was introduce Nguyen Hong Mi. I looked across the studio, and from out, literally from behind a curtain, out stepped this handsome fighter pilot man. <laughs> and my heart is beating 90 miles an hour because I wanted this meeting to go well, but I didn't know what kind of a person he was. Uh, my intuition told me that as fighter pilots, we would have far more in common than we ever did differences. 
And so I was really looking forward to it, but also I was very apprehensive. We shook hands, and with a very firm handshake, Hong Mi says to me, welcome to my country. I'm glad to see that you're in good health, and I hope that we can be friends. And so the friendship and the chemistry started right there immediately. Now I'd like to ask my handsome, by the way, he, since he's traveled in the United States and we've been exposed to a lot of media over the last <coughs> couple of years, uh, his new nickname is Movie Star. <laughs> and uh, Movie Star, you. Thank you. I would like for you to give the audience your impression of our first meeting. Lần đầu tiên gặp Dan Cherry, thực ra mà nói thì tôi cũng không không nghĩ, không tức là chưa bao giờ tôi nghĩ là sẽ gặp lại cái đối thủ của mình sau 36 năm. Thế đấy là một điều hết sức, tức là nằm ngoài cái dự kiến của tôi. Và cái điều quan trọng của cái suy nghĩ của tôi tức là, bởi vì lúc đấy thì chiến tranh đã kết thúc lâu rồi, cho nên là nhường lại cho tất cả những cái hận thù những cái đối địch ngày xưa thì bây giờ chỉ còn lại tình bạn và mong rằng khởi đầu của tình bạn đấy là giữa tôi và Dan Cherry và cũng như tất cả các cái cựu chiến binh của Việt Nam và cựu chiến binh Mỹ và nhân dân Việt Nam và nhân dân Mỹ. Bởi vì đã được thông báo trước rồi cho nên cũng đỡ bất ngờ. Um, actually, uh, Mr. Hongmi was noticed that he got to meet uh, Mr. General Dan Cherry here. Uh, so he's not really surprised, but he was really glad to see, you know, to, 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 to see the pilot who shot him down 36 years ago. Uh, he was thinking that, you know, um, now when the war is ready, uh, we're not enemy anymore. We're just two pilots, one to seek other. You know, see, you know, who who is the person, see what his personality is. And um, and uh, actually when he come to the studio and the first time met uh, Mr. Dan Cherry, he, he would go right away and shake uh, General Dan Cherry's hand because he thinks that right now, you know, when the war ends, we just friends. During the war, we are enemy. But we're not really an enemy because if, the, if if you are the enemy, only if you know the person, you hate the person, that's why you become enemy. But you know, he doesn't know, you know General Dentury. Both of them just try to, you know, serve their country and uh, try to, you know, uh, do the best to protect their country. So, um, um, Mr. Hong Mi, you know, uh, don't have second thought, just go right away, shake General Dentury's hand and want to be a friend with him right at that moment. Cũng như lần năm ngoái, cách đây một năm, lần đầu tiên tôi tôi gặp lại John Stein, tức là người đã bị tôi bắn rơi. Ấy. Thì mặc dù chưa ai giới thiệu, nhưng mà tôi nhìn vừa mới nhìn từ ở ô tô bước ra, tôi chỉ ngay tôi ở đúng là John Stein. Tôi, thì đúng đúng thật là chưa ai giới thiệu, nhưng mà tôi đã nhận ra là người đấy là, tức là nó có như là giác quan thứ sáu ấy. Có một cái cảm giác là rất là... <cười> Mm. We, Mr. Hongmi will explain to me that uh, the fighter pilot, they have the feeling when they see the enemy, they will feel it. They will feel the feeling that 
the, em, the, the enemy there. After the dog fight, they, they just see each other and they know who it is. Well, we, uh, we continued the interview with Tu Yin on the, on the stage <coughs> there, and uh, one little part about that that I'll share with you is uh, uh, she had collected still photographs of my family and Hong Ni's family ahead of time. And so while we're being interviewed, these photographs are being shown up on the big TV monitor on the wall, and I can see these things. And as photographs of my children and my grandchildren started to show, I got all choked up tears in my eyes, I couldn't talk, and I was just terribly embarrassed. Here I am in front of my fighter pilot, new fighter pilot friend, but somehow the sense of how this whole story could have turned out so totally differently, and how far away from home I was, and what precious treasures my children and grandchildren are, just hit me all of a sudden, and so it, it was tough right there. I was embarrassed about it, but I finally got myself under control. And then uh, the producer, the anchor, started showing pictures of Hong Mi's family, and he did the same thing I did. So, <laughs> so all of that was okay. After the show was over, we retired to their waiting room, or their, what they call their green room. And being from Kentucky, I thought only suitable that uh, a little gift of Kentucky bourbon. And Hong Mi uh, told me just the other day that he has not touched it. It's on display in his home. And uh, I'm not sure I believe that. But anyway. uh, and then we're sitting there, and I had a chance to ask him about the badges that he wears. Uh, the pilot wings, of course, uh, pilot first class, Vietnam Air Force. And this is called the Ho Chi Minh War Medal. And as he explained to me at this moment, uh, that he was awarded that for shooting down an American airplane in January 1972. I will tell you more about that, that part of the story as we go on through the presentation. But we went on up to a, a wonderful hotel called the Majestic Hotel in downtown Saigon and an open air restaurant. We drank a little wine, got to know each other a little bit better, and again, uh, our personalities worked right from the very beginning. And while we were sitting there, Hong Mi asked me, he said, uh, in your airplane, you shoot missile like this, or like that. <laughs> and I see Denny Jarvie back here flew the F-105. In the 105, you shot your missiles with you know, the button on top of your control stick. And, uh, but with the F-4, you have a trigger to shoot the missile. So I told Hong Mi I used the use of trigger. So he grasped my finger like this, and he goes. <laughs> <laughs> So I had my trigger finger spanked right there. <laughs> and right after that, he invited me to come to his home and have dinner with his family, which I thought was wonderful. Never expected anything like that. And we were doing the interview in Saigon, and Hong Mi lives in Hanoi. And so the very next day, we got on a Vietnam Airlines airplane and flew to Hanoi. We're reading the newspaper accounts of our television appearance here. We became overnight celebrities, I think. But, uh, but again, it was a surreal feeling flying over this countryside that I'd flown over so many years before in totally different circumstances. But we got to uh, Hanoi, uh, and as it turned out, we were staying in the Metropole Hotel, and uh, Hong Mi, his home is within walking distance. And he said, uh, I will pick you up at 5 o'clock. Is walking okay? And I said, yes, that'll be fine. And so 
my traveling companions, a gentleman by the name of Larry Bailey, who's on our board, and then my pr good friend, John Fleck, who is, there he is, John, who's responsible, I might say, for all of this wonderful photography and, uh, uh, and again, accompanied me on the trip to Vietnam. Uh, uh, Hong Mi came and uh, came to the hotel, and we took this nice leisurely stroll through the streets of Hanoi. Just a wonderful experience seeing all the, the old French architecture and the street side, and, and then all of the uh, motor scooters in that city as well. When we got to Hong Mi's home, his son came out with his grandson, Duc. Now, Duc, right here, was celebrating his first birthday on this very day. And at this time, Duc was Hong Mi's only grandchild. And so I went over to the little boy and tried to strike up a, some sort of a relationship. And the next thing I know, Hong Mi hands me Duc. And I'm thinking, oh, how far the trust had come between the two of us in that short period of time that he would trust me with his only grandchild. And it was very emotional for me, and again, added to the friendship that was building rapidly. Since then, Grandpa here has been blessed with another grandchild, and let me introduce some very important people here, if I might, to you. His daughter, Zong, will you stand, Zong? Her husband, Fung. And, and, and last, Baolin. And little Baolin. And it's delightful to have them with him this, this trip as well. So we went uh, into his home. He had a magnificent meal prepared for us. And we sat around and uh, got to know each other even better. A lot of his friends came in to visit at the time. And uh, we, we, again, we had uh, just, just great, warm hospitality everywhere we went, but particularly in Hong Mi's home. We drank some more wine, maybe a little bit of brandy with that. And then it was time to go back to the hotel, probably about 11 o'clock at night. And as I showed you in an earlier picture, uh, Vietnam is full of motor scooters. And Hong Mi is no different. He has kind of a souped-up version, but none, <laughs> nonetheless, he has a motor scooter. And my friend decided it would be most appropriate if he took me back to the hotel on his motor scooter. <laughs> and so, so here we go, uh, in the middle of the night through the streets of Hanoi, heading back to the hotel. And we're all laughing and having a great time. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I managed to survive and didn't die during the war, but I know I'm going to die here now. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a wonderful pilot, so I, I had great confidence. Hong Mi asked me if uh, he wanted, if wanted, uh, if I wanted him to be my tour guide the next day, and I said yes, I would love it if you would. And so he took me and my friends on the most wonderful tour you can imagine of Hanoi, uh, all of the military museums, and in particular the place I really wanted to go was the Wallow Prison, or what is more commonly known to Americans as the Hanoi Hilton where so many of my friends and probably some friends here in the audience spent, spent some time. As you can tell, Hong Mi is a very gregarious, happy person. And as we approached the prison, he became very somber and respectful and really walked a couple of steps behind me as we toured it. The prison was built back at the turn of the century and built mostly for the primary reason to house Vietnamese prisoners during French colonial rule. Vietnamese nationalists. 
And so most of the exhibits in it, it's now a museum, most of the exhibits uh, depict Vietnamese prisoners being held, but there's a small section that shows where uh, American prisoners being held as well. It's uh, not a pleasant place, but I'm so glad I had the opportunity to go to it. It gave me a better perspective on things. Uh, I'm looking at some of the exhibits on the wall about the Americans, and while I'm looking at some of the photographs, Hong Mi walks up behind me and whispered in my ear. He said, uh, you have friend in here? And I said, yes, I did. I said, that's my friend right there. That's Colonel John Flynn right there. And he just dropped his head and respectfully stepped away. And again, it meant so much to me because I knew that he, he knew how tough this was for me. We finished the tour, went out on the street, and we're waiting for the van to pick us up. And Hong Mi asked me to uh, do something for him because I'm getting ready to go back to America. And he said, uh, uh, I would uh, like for you to do research for me. The American airplane I shot down, uh, I think it was, I think the pilot was killed. If he was killed, I would like to extend my condolences to his family. If he survived, I would like to meet him someday. And so I promised him before I left that I would do everything I could to research the facts of that situation. I also extended an invitation for him to come to America and promised him I would work on that. Now this is in April of 2008 when this is taking place. So I get back and start doing the research and everything and also talking to my friends on the Aviation Heritage Park Board about how we're going to make this happen. Hong Mi needs to come, we need to reciprocate to his, with his hospitality. And so we were able to uh, uh, make all the arrangements, raise the money necessary to help out with the travel expenses. And in April of 2009, Hong Mi and his son Quan uh, arrived in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're, I'm here to meet him. We dedicated Aviation Heritage Park on the anniversary of our dogfight as well. And Hong Mi participated in that. It was a great honor for me for him to do that. On the anniversary of our dogfight, 2009, we dedicated Aviation Heritage Park. And for the first time in history, <laughs> the first time in history, a fighter pilot has returned from a dogfight in aerial combat, having been shot down, and sat in the actual cockpit of the airplane that shot him down. First time that's ever happened. And I thought I was going to have to talk Hong Mi into getting in the cockpit, because I, I really wanted him to. Uh, but he brought it up before I could, so that was good. <laughs> Had a chance to reciprocate as well in our home uh, with my children and my grandchildren. Hong Mi is a wonderful man with a great way with children, and they gravitate to him, and he, he loves them as well. And so we had a wonderful time there in Kentucky. I had a chance to get him in the cockpit with me, too. This is another thing I felt was important somehow, uh, is that I wanted him in this, my little Cessna 172. And so we got in there one day, and we flew to Frankfort, Kentucky, and visited the Kentucky Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's a wonderful memorial, and in Kentucky we're very proud of it because it's in the shape of a huge sundial, and the shadow as it traverses around the Granite Plaza touches the name of every Kentucky soldier that was killed in the war on the day that he was killed. And so uh, Hong Mi said at this time it made him very sad because it caused him to think of not only all the people that were lost in the war, but all the families that were left behind. We went down to Sun and Fun as well. 
and uh, spoke to a lot of audiences down there. Uh, great turnout, and we were able to get uh, Hong Mi the ride in the back seat of, uh, of this Yak airplane, and uh, we felt like it was appropriate because it had a red star on the back. <laughs> and, uh, but he had a great time, and we did too. And then we got to go to Washington, D.C. I thought that was real important to get there, get to Washington. I uh, got to visit the Capitol. We were able to present at the uh, Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And then to visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was just most important to both of us. And then back to the research, uh, the badge and everything, and what I discovered. Uh, I discovered that uh, in January of 1972, Hong Mi shot down an RF-4, reconnaissance version of the F-4. Uh, the airplane crashed in Laos. The front seater's name was Bob Mock. The back seater's name was John Stiles. Uh, both men <coughs> were rescued by an Air America helicopter, relatively uninjured, and that went on to fly, continue to fly more combat missions. Um, and um, when, when all of these facts became known, uh, what I wanted to do more than anything else is to live up to my promise of, of Hong Mi, to Hong Mi, that I would try to arrange an opportunity for him to meet the pilot he shot down. Part of my research, I discovered that Bob Mock had been killed in a car wreck about five years ago. But John Stiles is alive and well as a college professor living in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And I'd like for Hong Mi now to speak about his experience meeting John Stiles. Mặc dù chưa như hồi nãy tôi nói tức là chưa bao giờ chưa ai giới thiệu chưa biết mặt. Thế nhưng mà tức là linh cảm tôi khi mà John Stiles bước dừng ô tô dừng lại và bước ra khỏi ô tô tôi ngồi ở trong 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 khách sạn tôi nhìn ra thì tôi bảo đúng là do cái người tôi bắn rơi và sau đó thì đúng đúng thật như thế thế và chúng tôi có một cái ảnh không hiểu là ở đây có hay không nhưng mà john flex đã chụp được một cái ảnh tức là lúc cái phút đầu tiên cái phút giây đầu tiên chúng tôi ôm lấy nhau như những người bạn thân cũ chứ không phải là bạn mới Uh, as I mentioned about um, the fighter pilots, they had a feeling. So Mr. Hong Mi was, uh, told me about the first experience when he uh, meet, uh, uh, meet, uh, John, uh, meet uh, John Star right here. He was staying inside the hotel and he looked out. Mr. John Star just get out of the taxi. And he just ran out, he pointed to John Star, he like, I know you, I shot you down. <laughs> <laughs> Tức là chúng tôi gặp nhau, các bạn nhìn xem đây đây là những người bạn cũ chứ không phải là bạn mới. Rõ ràng đây là bạn, hai người đang nhìn vào mắt nhau như những người bạn cũ. Chứ không phải là kẻ thù. He was saying that you guys can all see that they they have the chemistry. They just recognize each other after you know, almost 40 years and they just stay at each other like an old friend not like an enemy or just people just meet each other at the first sight 
Well, it was, uh, it was a great experience being on the outside of that meeting and watching all that happen and the chemistry develop between the two of them. Uh, John Stiles had had great difficulty bringing closure to his wartime experience. And uh, after and we went to this, after we met in the hotel, the, the first picture you saw there, uh, John and his wife, Barbara, had set up a very nice dinner for us in a, in a, Vietnam, a Vietnamese restaurant in Arlington. And we went over there, we had dinner, and after we'd been there a while, we went, uh, Hong Mi and John and the interpreter went off in the corner all by themselves. And they were over there talking about all the circumstances. And then they both came back about 45 minutes later with big smiles on their face. And John said to me, he said, Dan, I've been waiting for this for 37 years. It's like someone has lifted a tremendous weight off of my shoulders. And so, you know, it was just so important for both men to, to meet each other for the first time. And so again, we're gonna have an opportunity uh, tomorrow and over this weekend to see John Stiles again. And we're also gonna have an opportunity to meet the helicopter pilot, Mr. Bob Nobles, that rescued John. So all of us are gonna to be together at an Air America reunion in Raleigh, North Carolina over this next weekend. But why are we out telling this story like we do? And uh, a lot of people are interested you know, in war stories, but as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, this notion of reconciliation and what is it we hope to accomplish, and Hong Mi and I have agreed totally in all this, that we hope that our reconciliation will help other Vietnam War veterans, and we know it has. We've seen it happen in audiences that we've spoken to. And we hope that our example also is an inspiration to our two countries to try to further our relationships and to make them more economic relationships and cultural relationships. The Vietnamese people are nice people. They're good people and they're hardworking people. And they need to be allies of the United States of America. And there's some universal messages here, I think. If you tell me grudges, the power of friendship and so forth. All of these things are, uh, we hope that you pick up on uh, from from the story, and I hope you'll take a chance to pick up a copy of the book, My Enemy, My Friend. Uh, Hong Mi, do you have any closing comments you'd like to make to the audience? Any words of? Bảo tua lại cái ảnh ba người. Can you go back to the picture with three? Which one? With you and John Stone. This one. Đây. Tất cả các bạn nhìn cái ảnh này có lẽ không ai nghĩ rằng đây là cách đây gần 40 năm đây là những người tìm cách để tiêu diệt nhau. Um, was saying that uh, when you look at this picture you cannot imagine that these three persons standing right there is trying to shoot down each other 40 years ago. Mà bây giờ thành những người bạn rất thân thiết. And now become a really close friend và mãi mãi sẽ là những người bạn tốt. And always be your best friend. Well, thank you, Hong Mi. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's been an honor for us to be here tonight. Uh, let me thank Gerald Metcalf and his staff. They've been so gracious to us. Uh, and, and again, to be able to make this presentation in this wonderful place is truly an honor. I thank you for your attention. Uh, I hope you've uh, gotten something out of it.